Hey everyone, and welcome to episode five of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Wathen, here with our UN correspondent, Amy Lieberman. Amy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, this was fun. And today, we are going to talk about the cost of desensitization when it comes to humanitarian crises, a very weighty subject. But I thought, as in other weeks, we could start off by getting to know Amy a little bit. She is down from New York, and so we have this fantastic <laughs> opportunity. So we have a couple of icebreakers. All right, let's hear it. All right, we're going to start with the first one. Most fulfilling journalism assignment? Um, there are a lot I could think of. I've been a journalist for a little over 10 years, I guess, now. Most recently, I went to Haiti, the northern region of a town called Bourne and was working with the organization there looking at a hospital they have and some work they're doing with mobile clinics, really just walking through the mountains to reach people. Um, and that was pretty amazing, I think. And just talking with some women and learning about really all that they do to just ensure they're healthy and their children are healthy is really impressive. When was that? Um, last month. Last month, okay. Pretty so recently, yeah. Coverage of that is up on devx.com, I Not yet, you can look okay. for it. We're doing um, a piece on that coming out with a lot of video and visual content, um, I believe later this week, probably oh, tomorrow. very exciting. Yeah, it'll be cool. So check back on that, and as we go through these, if you at home have answers to, your, to these icebreakers, we would love to hear them in the comments. Okay, second one. Okay. There's this quirky thing about our industry where people tend to get slotted around into different jobs. You know, it's called like being seconded to a different area mm -hmm. of an organization. You can come in with one job and then you kind of get stationed somewhere else. So hypothetically, if you were working within the UN system and you found out that you were going to be placed into a different agency, would you rather be seconded into OCHA, the Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs, or UNDP, uh, the UN Development Program. Can I add a third option? <laughs> Potentially, <Sure>. okay. <laughs> Sorry, um, so I'd probably OCHA of the two that you mentioned there, um, just because I think their work seems, both their work's incredible, but I think OCHA is just working in a really fast-moving pace and working on some of the issues that are really at the heart um, of the emergency response that the UN's doing and also connecting with um, other organizations in the field, which is really great, I think. Um, Outside of those two, I'd probably go for UNFPA just because of my real interest in women's health and passion for that. All right, so option C. Option UNFPA. C, sorry to throw you there, yeah. All right, so this is the final question. Okay. It is a superlative. All right. All right, who would you vote most likely to sing Whitney Houston's I Just Want to Dance with Somebody <laughs> in the shower? And I'm not talking like just singing, I'm talking belting. Really getting into it, yeah. yeah. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres wow. or UNDP Chief Occam Steiner or an option C? <laughs> <laughs> um, I met Occam Steiner not that long ago and uh, I don't know, he seems, I, I could see that definitely, it'd be fantastic. Um, I think I would vote for Guterres though, yeah. if possible, just because he's so... I mean, he knows all, so many languages. Occam Steiner does too, so they can do multiple versions of it, which will be pretty great. Seeing Occam Steiner just you know, in his <laughs> doing it in German, yeah. doing it in Portuguese, yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Um, but thinking of Bukaterres, I think that he, you know, is has this, such a stately role at the UN to see him kind of let loose a little. Be pretty fun. I know it does feel like a letting loose thing. Yeah, and with Occam Steiner, I I've seen him interviewed before, and he's such a measured guy. He's very I mellow. Think, yeah, it needs to come out somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for playing my. That's fun. Game. Yeah. And now we are going to segue into something that is 
much more serious. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about what happens when people become desensitized to humanitarian crises. Mm -hmm. In this, we're mostly talking about when policymakers and the public become desensitized. This has real-world implications. Not It's not just turning off your TV or getting off of Facebook. It's you know, human things for like humanitarian access, their implications, funding. Yeah. So I want to get into that a bit. So first and foremost, how do people come become desensitized to these big, big issues that affect so many people? It's really complex. I think, and it's I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for it. One thing that I see in the media and just the way people respond to certain things is just oversaturation. That there are so many conflicts that are going on right now that have been going on for a really long time. Um, you know, close to a decade in some cases, or on and off, just like that for years as well, that it's really easy, I think, to just see like, okay, something bad's happening in Syria again, okay, here we go, Democratic Republic of Congo, and kind of just turn it off because it's not unique anymore. It's become just part of the norm. It also feels like there's a kind of a difference between, you know, a natural disaster type right. of humanitarian crisis, like the earthquake in Haiti versus an ongoing conflict. Mm -hmm. Would you, is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah, I think a lot of these things come in cycles with any other part of the media coverage is like that as well, that, you know, a hurricane strikes Haiti um, or an earthquake, and then it's just like all the attention's on that, and then following it, the recovery efforts don't really get covered as much because it's not as exciting is not the right word, but it doesn't really immediately grab you visually in that same way. The stories are still there, people are really suffering, but it's not, they're just not screaming out. A lot of the attention just kind of moves away from them. Um, what's kind of interesting, I think, is I actually talked with the uh, Mark Lockhock head of OCHA not that long ago about this and how they're really seeing, on top of all these protracted crises, they're now finding natural disasters are occurring more and more. One of the results of climate change are more intensely some in the same areas that they're working in, um, but other areas as well. Wait, do you say that there might be kind of a, a drawing away of attention from the public for even nat natural disasters? Um, I think possibly. I think it's also a question of funding, that these things were not necessarily something you had to take into account as much um, a decade, two decades ago. So if you have an organization like OCHA that's working really hard to address all of these long-term crises, all the smaller things that are popping up, you have natural disasters that mix, and the funding kind of has to go from, from something. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into the intricacies of humanitarian funding yeah. in a little bit, but I do, um, I do wonder if, too, when it comes to building, like what is the role of media in generating awareness about big crises? And it just still feels like there's this difference between national, like natural disasters and things like conflict. Maybe that natural disasters just seem so much easier to wrap your head around. Yeah. You know, like there's an earthquake and people are hurting and there's a response, whereas with protracted crises, there's so many actors and so many yeah. different things to figure out. What would, what's your sense about that? I think that's totally right. I think natural disasters follow a certain trajectory in coverage that you kind of know how that's going to go. Another part of it, I think for me personally, is that um, you can see it, you know, if you're living in a place that is generally really stable, um, you could see that's still happening to you a little bit more probably than you can see, you know, rebel movements rising up and trying to overthrow the government. And that's a reality for a lot of people, but um, I think natural disasters are increasingly becoming a reality for, for everyone um, in different ways. So I think for in terms of media coverage, it is a little bit easier, as you say, to kind of just 
tell that story and tell it really quickly and get a lot of coverage out of it. Um, with conflicts, I think part of the problem is that it's, it's ongoing, as I said, but it's also changing so fast. And that's something that we think about here because in order to really cover it well, to keep up with it, it's almost impossible. You'd have to either be following it you know, every single day because it's just so fast moving um, or be there, which also I think is you know, not so easy for a lot of journalists. You can't really get into Yemen now. You don't want people working in Syria. It's just become much more dangerous to do that work, whereas for natural disasters, you won't really have that risk of going there. Sure. And then, you know, there are some crises that just get a lot more press than mm -hmm. others. You know, kind of in your day to day, you would hear about you know, Syria and a lot of these crises that you know, seem to sort of flare up in coverage and, yeah. then, and mediate, but it's always there. There are other crises, like, say, in North Korea, which is facing a big humanitarian situation right now, or Northeast Nigeria, totally. that don't seem to get a ton of press. And I'm wondering what the challenges are, what what it's like for you as a journalist to cover these different crises mm -hmm. and why you feel attention might be going to some and not others. And of course, this is also coming from, we're talking in Washington, D.C. right now, so kind of a U.S.-based um, yeah. lens that we're looking through. I, North Korea is not on our area of coverage. Um, it could be, that'd be interesting. Um, I think that it just becomes, for me, when I cover it, I try to think really about how do I, for our angle, how do we really get at how this is impacting aid, how this is impacting development, sort of the practicality of that, what this is meaning for you know different organizations, they try to deliver aid to some people and they can't do it because the roads are blocked or it's dangerous for them. Um, it means kind of that I really want to try to talk to people as much as I can who are in these places because I'm not there myself. Uh, and I think in some cases people are probably just really focused on the work that they're doing and maybe don't want to take as much time to talk to journalists. And in other cases, um, in the DRC, for example, I know that you know some UN agencies have not been able to get access to certain regions. So it means that it's harder to get the story, um, in some ways the full story, out of a place like that. I really want to dig into this, this issue of access. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, as you said, North Korea, I mean, you were talking about your personal experience yeah. as a journalist, but I imagine for most journalists, it's just hard to get sources inside North Korea and totally. to really figure out what's going on. In the, under the umbrella of what we're talking about, which is a, you know, a public that might not be tuning in as much to different humanitarian crises, what is the connection between that and access on the ground for reporters? You mean just areas that are kind of off the grid for the most part? Or? Like if you have a public that this isn't paying a lot of attention mm -hmm. to, say, DRC, yeah. um, Democratic Republic of the Congo, does it make it, is there a connection that makes it harder for reporters to actually do the reporting that they need to do? I think that connection's always there, the relevancy is always there. Um, you know, when you have Crises like these, they tend to have spillover effects and on a regional level, on a national, I mean, more than national level, just on, on an international level. Um, so it's important. I think often journalists sort of, not often, but some journalists have the mentality that, you know, this is happening in a really far away, remote, poor place, and that's just as it is. Um, so what I try to do, I think what we try to do is really show how, you know, because this crisis is underfunded, this is why that matters, and this is what it says kind of more broadly about the UN system and really aid organizations and how they're doing. And funding is another thing that can be very much tied to the public tuning yeah. in. Can we, I want to hear a bit from you about this connection between 
you know, if you have a really engaged public for a certain crisis that's abroad, that might then put pressure on policymakers to actually do something about it, like release funding or at least, I would imagine, you know, kind of rally people into getting on board with mm -hmm. funding crises. Is that, what is your take on that? You've seen, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, there are some efforts I remember reading about or reporting on in, um, in the UK a little bit back where organizations were teaming up, coming together collectively to try to really raise funds for one specific crisis. And I think that sort of thing works really well um, because I think what, what happens otherwise is that it just kind of falls to the wayside in a lot of different cases. Um, there's the issue of earmarked funding from governments as well, I think, just talking with a, someone from UNICEF who works in humanitarian issues there, that you know they have their largest appeal out um, this year, 3.6 billion, and um, it's huge. And they're responding to more people who need more countries for the most part, and when governments say, okay, we're just gonna specify money for this particular area, it means they can't do all that they need to do overall. It feels like every year we hear the story about yeah. how there's just not enough funding mm -hmm. for all of the different crises that are going on. There are more people displaced right now than at any time since World War II. Can the public play a role, like an engaged public, in getting more funding flowing? Or is that kind of is any enthusiasm around that kind of stymied by, by things like earmarked funds? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, every individual can do their own part, I think, by saying this is an issue, this is an area that I find is really important and critical and really needs help right now. Um, but most of the funding, and you see organizations also looking you know, more to the private sector in some cases and things like that. I find that um, it's more effective when people really come together collectively and say, okay, you could, not really development, but in the US what we're seeing with gun violence right now, just really coming together and saying this is the issue that we all want to work on together, not just one individual stepping forward. And is there a particular crisis that you have reported on where mm -hmm. you've seen kind of this um, this kind of engagement make a difference? Uh, none comes to mind. Forgetting where that money in the UK was going towards. To be honest, I think kind of it's, it's as you're saying, it's. Um, it's hard, I think, to really get people to have that engagement overall just because it, these issues pop up, you know what I mean? Ports are blocked in Yemen one week and then it, you don't hear about it again after that. Um, in Syria you have a ceasefire right now, technically over a certain area, there, eastern Ghouta, and then I'll be interested to see what happens a few weeks from now when it, when it drops off because I think it's, you know, as you're saying, this rhetoric of, you know, this is as bad as it's ever been, more people displaced since World War II or since that time and it's hard to figure out where exactly you want to focus your, your energy and your attention. You've been doing a bit of reporting on Yemen. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about you know, the humanitarian situation there, but also what, you know, what access is like over there and kind of just sort of a broad brush of the situation unfolding right now? Yeah, one story I'm working on actually is um, I talked with someone who works for CARE recently who's Yemeni. And that was really interesting, I thought, because what you're finding is for international staff, a little bit more than national staff, it's really hard for them to travel. And you know, the whole country, um, you have to get permits, potentially, that could take a while to clear. Um, for a while, they didn't have aid coming in, really, just goods coming in through ports that were closed. Um, so it seems like a good bit of actually the field work is following on Yemeni people. Uh, international staff it's, are mostly kind of just in offices at their homes, that sort of thing. 
So I think it takes on a different meaning when you're talking about a crisis or ongoing conflict like that that's really being people really trying to address it and respond to the needs of civilians and need our, that's their people, you know, those are their countrymen. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago we were having a conversation about how when, you know, people, when the eyes kind of off the ball for different crises, it can have big implications for aid worker security. Mm -hmm. Is that, can you explain what that, what that means, one, and then two, how that's playing out in Yemen? Yeah, so in Yemen, you've seen that um, it's not really that safe for, for aid workers. You have seen overall just the, it's interesting because aid worker attacks, it's really, how do you define it, I guess, is one question that I've kind of tried to wrap my head around a little bit. Um, would that mean someone, a local Yemeni person working at a medical clinic? Would that only mean someone coming from international organization? And when you look at um, how it's tracked, there are a lot of gaps in that data. Um, but it is pretty clear, I think, what you're seeing overall is that aid workers who are working in some of these countries like Yemen, like the DRC, like Syria, they're not safe. You know, they used to be more so just people who are considered kind of off limits in the same way that journalists were. And now you're seeing not only are they fair game, but they're being targeted specifically, which I find is pretty scary. And what is there a role that media can play at sort of this nexus of humanitarian crises and aid worker security? Mm -hmm. Like, would you say if there's a conflict that's getting more media attention, yeah. if more outlets are reporting on it in different parts of the world, does that tend to make does that make make aid workers and local staff safer? I think lack of normalization of the problem. I mean, can only help in some way. Um, in Syria, I just reported on this, you had um, several hospitals that were bombed affiliated with Doctors Without Borders and some of their staff killed of those partners, I mean. Um, and I feel like, particularly Syria, when you read the coverage of it now, it's just, okay, this hospital was bombed, these schools were bombed, these children were killed, and the aid worker stories don't tend to rise up as much in the mainstream coverage. Um, they do sometimes, but I think just not really accepting as kind of normal course of action that aid workers are going to be killed, they are being killed, they can't travel to a lot of areas they once could. I think that's that's really important. Yeah, maybe talking less about, oh, you know, aid workers, where well, you're going to South Sudan or you're going to these very yeah. dangerous places, you know, I think there might be a tendency to say, you know, there is always risk. They chose these assignments, but you're still talking about people getting killed trying to help other people. Totally, yeah. And, and those are people who really are there just giving what um, services and goods that I guess that people are not going to get in a lot of cases. I think you have over a quarter of people in Yemen entirely dependent on food aid right now. So what happens to those people if they can't be reached, if they're off the grid, um, if aid workers, it's too dangerous for them to go out there and find them? Yeah. Uh, my name is Kate Wathen. This is episode five of Long Story Short here with Amy Lieberman talking about the cost of becoming desensitized to humanitarian crises. If you do have questions about this topic, I urge you to put them in the comments, and we do have a couple questions cool. already. So the first one is from the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. I took your course. <laughs> <laughs> what is the latest science on different forms of both secondary trauma and desensitization based on repetition versus initial exposure? What are warning signs of both in team members? That is an in-depth question. That really, it's pretty technical <laughs> stuff. Um, I could speak just from what I know about this. I'm not an expert on that issue in particular trauma. I know that it is something that um, aid workers, you can experience that just by seeing something that's really traumatic. Um, 
And that applies to journalists, that applies to aid workers, um, that applies obviously to the civilians, people who are just living in these countries, and that could have really long-term impacts on you. Um, and I don't know exactly how much, um, I know that some organizations start to work in this a little bit more, really thinking about mental health services for aid workers, but I don't think that's a regular part of the conversation still. Yeah, I would wonder if there's a lot, um, if there are a lot of resources out there to really prepare humanitarians for going into something like a conflict zone. Yeah, I don't, I think there's the going in, there's also coming back and just having to reacclimate to life, um, just daily life in a place where you're not really under, under siege. Yeah, I mean, as a reporter, I mean, I know you've traveled all over the world, I mean, have you, you or colleagues kind of talked about or shared advice about how to kind of either cope or prepare yourself for going in and reporting um, on a conflict zone? Um, a little bit. Trauma for journalists, I think, is, is a real thing. There's a um, center at Columbia Journalism School that focuses just on that. Um, I, and obviously I've reported on some things that are pretty um, heavy also and it's, I think it's always going to be hard when you see people suffering or in danger in some way and often I find as a journalist maybe it's like this for an aid worker too they look to you and say people you're talking with and sometimes they want to talk to you because they think you can help them out of a situation and that's not really how it works so I have had unfortunately it's just you can't really get them out or sort of ethically give them money um, so yeah I have a conversation with your friends about really how you respond to that and deal with that and the best way that I respond is by saying, you know, we're, I'm going to tell your story, we're going to talk about the situation here, and with that we hope that it can sort of bring awareness and help your situation. And something that we're continuing to do is we report more and more on yeah. these humanitarian crises. Uh, we have a, another one. Have you seen the UN respond to organized publicity campaigns on an issue outside of a natural disaster or a breaking news story? And if so, Forgive me, Sam. <laughs> uh, and if so, how can organizations most effectively promote these issues that matter to them? That is a great question. It's a good question, yeah. Um, I've seen some efforts by UN staffers and organizations working around the UN on parental leave and um, gender parity and sexual harassment, obviously, is a huge one right now. And it does seem like the UN is responding um, different levels to all of those but really yeah I have I think on those issues really I guess the well-being of staff um, I think that is being taken more seriously. Yeah. Are there any kind of communications tactics that you've seen that have really resonated with people inside the UN? Um, I think that what people what I see people doing there is kind of just collectively coming together and saying this is what we want and laying out all the proposals and then bringing it forward. Yeah. To, to pretty high up at the UN. And it seems like if you're organized and smart and you have really concrete proposals, that does it does work to some degree. Yeah, having that concrete proposal, but also yeah. knowing exactly who your audience is within the UN and how to reach them. Yeah, I think that's right. And having to be pretty specific. Yeah, sure. All right. From Evelyn Cruz, are any attempts ever made before aid workers go to the field to obtain any type of cooperation from different f factions or groups? You mean from governments, I guess? I guess so. Um, so I believe, so for example, I know in Syria right now with the humanitarian corridor, the idea is that you're going to be protected as you go through that. And I don't think that's really being kept to really as far as I understand. Um, 
I, I mean, basically, international human rights law says that you are protected, more or less, if you're doing this work. So I think that's kind of the underlying assumption for a lot of people. I feel like that's a whole different show that we could do yeah. about kind of abiding by the humanitarian principles and mm -hmm. different actors and how that actually plays out on the ground. Because you know, there's a reason that when you're a humanitarian, you get a diplomatic passport. That you're not really, you're not technically kind of any legal body. But still, I mean, I know that for different governments, they don't, they aren't, you know, going to be waving it around in a public forum where they are operating, especially in places of conflict where mm -hmm. the risk is so high, despite that humanitarian mandate. Right, because it's pretty clear, I think, that you are um, violating those, just those basic agreements, those basic laws, if you're not really, and you see some governments purposely targeting aid workers, and that's not really in the spirit of it. Um, I think it just increasingly, with some of these conflicts, it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> it's, it's awful, but it doesn't seem to have you know the ramifications maybe that it once did for them. Does that, you know, the outcome of any kind of uh, like visible or tangible change that you've seen? Like, why do you think that that might not be like humanitarian principles or kind of what organization you're with? Why do you think that might not be as taken into consideration now? I'd be fascinated to talk with an expert on this particular issue and just kind of because I'm sure there are some historical events you can point to where you really started to see that all kind of spiral out. Um, what I see a little, where I think a little bit is that conflicts increasingly are not, you know, it's not like it was in World War II, where it was just government versus government in some ways and soldiers on the ground. Um, it's very dispersed, and there are a lot of different moving elements to a lot of these conflicts with various rebel groups that pop up or form together, and um, it's hard to kind of hold someone accountable. Yeah, I imagine on the ground it's harder and harder to distinguish who's who. Yeah, in the kind of in the throes of conflict or even a giant natural, na excuse me, natural disaster. Mm -hmm. So, what are your? You know, we've talked about being coming desensitized and what that means for access, what it means for funding, what yeah. it means for security, and media. What are your big takeaways about you know the implications of there not being much attention to? being paid to certain crises? I think for me what I'm seeing is that, I mean you look at um, again a place like Yemen and you're seeing that okay there's a conflict going on there but you're also seeing a lot of cholera cases and diphtheria and all these other things and that really if you're not addressing kind of the heart of, I mean you need the conflicts to end basically for any of this to get better. Um, but with that, I think it means more or less that you're, you can't fund this adequately, you can't access the places or the people as well as you should, it's not going to go away. And it's going to continue to put more pressure, I think, on us internationally just as a global community to really see how um, a lot of people are going to get hurt and die. And there are a lot of the people who are in these countries, if they can, are probably going to try to go somewhere. And it's all really just a ripple effect. Yeah. I do want to spend the last couple minutes talking about, um, you've been doing some reporting on Syria, mm -hmm. and would love to hear your insights about what you're learning and then anything that's going to be coming out that you're publishing in the coming days or weeks. Sure. Um, so I just, this past week, reported on the situation in Eastern Ghouta, um, and I think um, it's clearly seems like it's a horrible situation there and just what's scary is that the ceasefire that was brokered is not being respected at this point. Um, I think in the future I'd be interested in looking at kind of just how that's playing out. I think it's important in some cases that we continue to follow stories like that 
and not just let them drop um, because they are really evolving and trying to understand a little bit more um, exactly what the greatest needs are there for people right now. And um, again, this issue of access, I think, is so key. Yeah, I mean, in Syria is a great example of what we were talking about earlier of certain conflicts just seem to ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, something that I think you've been you've been doing such great reporting on this and kind of not taking your eye off the ball with Thanks. a lot of these different conflicts. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining Thanks, us. everyone. And everyone at home, if you have questions that we didn't get to, we're happy to answer them afterward. And her coverage will be up on devx.com. Thank you. Thanks.